Father, we thank you for these words that we have here. We thank you for how they point us to Jesus, to what it means to trust him and to live confidently before him and before you. So would you be with us as we look at these words now? Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit so that we hear you speaking to us and so that we're equipped to live for you in your world? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. This last year has in, in many ways been about hope, hasn't it? Or lack of hope. Uh, hope of things at some point, some time, returning to some kind of normality. Uh, we, we've even recovered the rainbow to uh, symbolise this. Human beings need hope. And, and here in these verses we read of a man whose faith was strong even when things seemed hopeless. He'd been given a promise that from him would come a great nation. But here he is, he's 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old and this, this doesn't look like a promise that's going to be kept. It all looks pretty hopeless. There's nothing to look forward to. But he believed what God said and it happened. Now what does it take to have that kind of faith? The kind of faith that you can stake your life on. Well, that kind of faith takes what Christians often call assurance. The Victorian bishop J.C. Ryle wrote an essay on assurance, which reads like it was written yesterday, if you, if you read it. Um, you can find it online not over 100 years ago. Um, and when we, when we talk about assurance, we mean the confidence that God is there, that we really do belong to Jesus, that we really are his, that our faith is real and genuine, that we will be saved. But let me, let me just show you little thing that uh, he wrote. There, there is J.C. Ryle, serious case of lockdown hair going on there, uh, even in Victorian times. But he, he wrote this, there is one chief reason why so many in this day are inconsistent, unsatisfactory and half-hearted in their conduct about the world. In other words, one reason why people are kind of inconsistent in the way they live as Christians. What does he say that is? He goes on, their faith fails. Their faith fails because they feel no assurance that they are Christ's and so feel a hesitancy about breaking with the world. So can you see what he's saying? He's saying if you don't, if you don't have assurance that you belong to Jesus, that you know God and he knows you, that you are his, if you don't have that assurance and confidence, well, then you will be hesitant about breaking with the world. In other words, you'll be hesitant about, well, you know, do I today, do I go God's way, do I go the world's way? And you will find it difficult to make a clean break, to turn back, turn, turn your back on sin and to go and uh, God's way and follow him. And you'll end up living a kind of half-hearted, miserable, indecisive life. Half committed to following Jesus, half committing to, to going with the world. Does that sound at all familiar in our experience if you're, tr if you're, if you're trusting Jesus? 
Well, J.C. Ryle diagnoses uh, a lack of assurance as being the case of this, uh, the, the cause of this sickness in our lives. And in these uh, final <clears throat> verses of the first four chapters of Romans that we've been looking at, we finish with Paul applying all that he's been saying in order to show how we can have the kind of faith that Abraham had that did not waver, that was fully assured. We saw in chapters 1 to 3 that Paul laid out the problem human beings face, that whoever we are, whatever we've done, we can't wriggle out of the guilty verdict that we face before God. Our only hope is Jesus and his death as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation, we, we heard that word explained a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus took the punishment we deserve in our place. And the result is justification. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our shortcomings. He sees Jesus' perfect life lived in our place and his death that he died on our behalf. And then we receive that as a gift. We receive it by faith. And in the first half of chapter 4, he applies that wonderful truth to some specific questions that start to arise as soon as you start talking about faith. Because the question then is, well, where does what we do as Christians fit into this? You know, the good works of meeting with other Christians, of praying, of serving in our communities, of caring for the vulnerable, of acts of love and kindness. Surely God rewards religious people. Surely he rewards people who try and impress him with their good lives, who do their bit, who think of others, whatever it might be. And Paul says, no, you're missing the point. There can be no place for boasting in what we do before God. Because this righteousness we have received is a gift that you receive by faith, by trusting, not by doing things to earn it, but by receiving as a gift. And so the objection comes, well, hang on a minute. What about Abraham in the Old Testament? Because, you know, surely God rewarded him for being a, a, a good law-abiding person. You know, he was circumcised as he was commanded. Surely that is what God wanted of his descendants. So, so does this mean that God has changed his mind, that he was doing something else with his people before Jesus came, and now he's moved on to plan B? And, and can we trust him at all, then, if he has different plans for different people? That's why you might ask this. Well, no. When we looked at the first half of chapter 4 with, with Mark before Easter, we saw it's always been like this. Abraham believed God's promise before he did anything else. And from him came a family of people who need to believe God like he did. But now, in verses 13 to 25, we see boasting in what we do before God is not just inappropriate because we've been given a gift that we can't earn, but it's also boasting before God in what we do is inappropriate because it damages our assurance before God. The question behind these verses, 13 to 25, is, is a simple one. Can I stake my life on the promises God has made? That is what Abraham did as he believed God and trusted him. It seemed crazy to do that. It seemed to go against all human hope. 
And that is what Paul wants his readers to do. He wants to show them how the gospel should move them to a, <clears throat> a radical unity with one another that crosses the normal boundaries of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, and so on. To move to a radical unity and a radical commitment to mission where they're prepared to give themselves up sacrificially and give of their resources sacrificially so that others can hear this same good news. That's where he ends up later on in the letter, where we're not going to get to at this stage. But his argument here on the way is that only the gospel of justification through faith alone will cause somebody to live like that. And that's what we see then in these verses. Can you stake your life on God's promise? Well, yes, you can stake your life on God's promise because, first of all, from verses 13 to 17, faith is the basis of the promise. Faith is the basis of the promise. The promise we're talking about is in verse 13. Have a look at that, if you've got that in front of you. A promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would inherit the world that the plan to redeem the world and rescue it from the mess of sin would center on this one man and his family. And Paul says that promise is received by faith and not by keeping the law. And that's important because it means the basis on which, on which God keeps his promise is not us, but him. Can you see the difference? He, he spells it out in verse 14. He says, if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. Now, this is returning to the argument of chapters 1 to 3. You can't rely on the law of Moses to save you because all it will do is convict you of sin. The law says, do not murder, but in our hearts, if not in action, we have murdered in anger. The law says, do not commit adultery, but in our hearts, if not in action, we have lusted. If God's promise to save the world depends on human beings keeping our end of the deal, as it were, then we're doomed. The, the, the promise, he'll never keep the promise if it depends on us. Where there is no law, there is no transgression, he says. It's not that those who don't have the law are not sinners, but... The law only serves to highlight the way we break God's law. So you, you, you can't say, oh, well, it's okay because I've got the law and that shows me how to live a good life and therefore I can earn God's approval with that. He's saying, no, no, you can't. What it does is it shows up what kind of sinner you are. When I was at school, there was this thing called the International Maths Olympiad. Now, get that. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? I think it still exists. And the idea was that you competed in teams against mathematicians from around the world. Now, they had a, a number of rounds. Now, I, it's not that I was anywhere near getting into this sort of team to represent the uh, United Kingdom, but they had a number of rounds kind of leading up to it in which people like me were eliminated as also rounds. But you could go on a, on a training camp in the summer holidays for kind of teenage geeks where they talked about how to do these questions which were phenomenally difficult. And they talked about how many, you know, many people who sat them would literally get zero marks for four and a half hours of exam. And these, these, are, guys, these are straight A students in other contexts. And, and some people would sit down and they'd sit, they'd look at these questions 
And you're supposed to do about three questions in, in four and a half hours. And, you, and people would write pages and pages and pages of answers. But in the end, nothing actually relevant to the question being asked. And, I, and the verdict, and I remember, I remember an examiner kind of explaining this with kind of glee in his eyes. You know, these, these pages and pages of attempts to answer these questions. And he said, the verdict of all of this at the end of it is, well, that's a good zero. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? You sit down at the exam table, you know, hoping the paper might let you reveal your mathematical prowess to the world and you emerge with it having highlighted that actually you can do nothing. Now, if God decided whether to keep his promise to save the world based on the ability of his people to keep the law and to do good things... That's the basis on which he's going to keep his promise. The promise is worthless, Paul says. Because the law will only highlight what you can't do. Do you see? Therefore, verse 16, the promise comes by faith. So that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. It may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those of the law, the, the Jewish people, in other words, who believe in Jesus but actually to any who are of the faith of Abraham. So Jew or Gentile, if you believe in Jesus, that makes you a child of Abraham and part of his family. He is our father, he says. So the question is not, have you been circumcised? It's not, do you keep the law of Moses? It's not, do you live a good life? It's, do you have the faith like Abraham did? Do you have that kind of faith? Do you see why it matters that it's by faith? You see, this is the only way that God can guarantee that the promise will be kept. Because the whole point of faith is that it's not something that we do. It's about receiving and not doing. And it's something anyone, anyone at all, can do. Now, as some people know, we've got a puppy. And um, one of the puppy training manuals that we've been reading desperately... Um, it talks about the dead dog test. And the idea is that you need to give a dog a positive command to do. So this is one of those books that tells you that the word no is not very helpful. Because you, you, if you just tell them not to do something, they don't know what to do. You need to tell them what you want them to do positively. In other words, they're saying, if, if, if what you're saying could be done by a dead dog, it's not a proper command, and you need to rephrase it and do it and say it differently. So that's the theory anyway. So, you know, stop licking the dishwasher is a dead dog command. Because, well, it could be kept by a dog lying dead on the floor. That's the point, you see. Go play with this toy instead. That's a positive command. That's a proper command. So that's the, that's the theory, and you know, seasoned dog owners can tell us how we're going wrong with that particular book. But what Paul is saying here is that actually the dead dog test is a good one when it comes to faith. Because the dead dog test is one that anyone, anywhere can pass. You don't have to do anything positive at all. You know, you are dead, and he actually uses that phrase in Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead and you just have to receive what God has done for you in Christ. 
because verse 17, he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That is what God is doing when he keeps his promise. That's what he's doing with Abraham, calling this unknown, no-hoper pagan to be the father of a nation that would save the world. That's what he's doing with any of us when he brings us into his family. Not on the basis of our performance, past, present, or future. Not on the basis of anything in us at all. Because we're dead. But you can stake your life on this, Paul is saying. You can have complete assurance that you belong to God's family because it doesn't depend on you at all. And that is why pride and boasting in what we do, which is where he started in this chapter, if you remember, and boasting in what we do and who we are, that is why that's so destructive because it destroys that assurance that we have before God. It leads to insecurity. Now think about it, in our world today, insecurity and kind of low self-esteem are huge issues, aren't they? And so often we think the solution must be to kind of big ourselves up some more. You know, the problem is I've got too low opinion of myself, I need a little boost. So we boost ourselves and we want others to boost us and we get angry when they don't. But actually, that kind of insecurity can be a sign of thinking not too little of ourselves, but actually too much of ourselves, because we're determined to form our identity on the basis of what we do. Do you see? But when it comes to God, we are determined, when we're acting like that, to make our standing before him depend on what we do. And the result is insecurity and lacking the assurance that we're already accepted and loved by God. It's by faith, says Paul. You are already loved. God is guaranteed to keep his promise. Why live and behave as if that's not true? Why let that drive us to a half-hearted Christian life where we can't commit because we're not quite sure if God is committed to us. The basis of the promise is faith. Receive that promise. Okay then, so tell us more about this faith then, Paul. What do you mean by faith? Well, he goes on to that in verses 18 to 22. And he focuses now on God. He says you can stake your promise on, you can stake your life on God's promise because Secondly, God is the maker of the promise. God is the maker of the promise. Verses 18 to 22. Well, what kind of faith did Abraham have? A faith that didn't waver, we read in verses 19 and 20. He was strengthened in his faith, and we think, oh, that sounds amazing. I'd love to have faith like that. What's the secret? Well, the secret is not in Abraham, Paul says, but in the God he was trusting. You know how people often think faith must be something to do with you know, closing your eyes to reality and believing in your heart what you know in your head isn't really true or something like that? Well, that's not the kind of faith that Abraham had, if you look. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was barren. So what was he doing with his circumstances that he was in? He wasn't ignoring them. He wasn't pretending that wasn't there. He faced them. He faced the facts. And he looked pretty hopeless. You know, if they turned up at hospital looking for maternity, 
They'd have been directed to, you know, geriatrics, if not psychiatry. See, faith isn't about pretending those circumstances aren't there. It's important to, to see that, isn't it? He faced what was actually going on. And against all hope, in hope, he believed. Because, verse 21, why? He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Do you see, he, he knew God was the kind of God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. It's the object of faith that makes faith strong. We, we, we all have faith in something, actually. You know, even, even atheists. They, atheists really hate it when people say this. But everyone believes something about themselves and their lives and where we come from and what happens when we die. And if your faith in God is wavering or you're wondering whether you can trust him at all, what do you need? When you, you need more of him. In Genesis, God took Abraham outside and he told him to look up at the stars and count them. And, and said, as Paul says here, so shall your offspring be. Now the point of that was not simply to get him to marvel at a big number, which, you know, out in the, uh, in the, in the desert, as it were, and you look up, you would see a huge number of stars, of course. Um, because it makes a difference who is saying, look at those stars, doesn't it? This is God saying, look at those stars. And, and what do we know in Genesis about the stars and God? Well, we know chapter 1, he also made the stars. <laughs> look at these stars, that, by the way, I made. And if I made those, do you think I can't handle an aged, barren womb when I've made a commitment and a promise to you and the people that will come from you? Look at who is making the promise. That's the point. It's God. And so for us today, that is who we need to focus on when our faith wavers. Go to him. Go to his word. Gather with Christian friends to speak of God together, to pray to him together, to look at who he is, to look at what he's done. Do you think he can't handle a pandemic, a lockdown, a cancer diagnosis, death itself? Can we trust him with these things? Abraham said yes, and God credited that to him as righteousness. He counted him right with him. But Paul then wants us to see finally that we Christians have even more than that to go on. And we see thirdly and finally, you can stake your life on God's promise because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Verses 30, 23 to 25. Abraham had God's word. He had his creative power to go on. We have that and we have the fulfillment of God's promise in history. Not just that God could keep his promise, that's, that's how it looked from Abraham's perspective. Yeah, I think this is a God who, who can keep his promise. Now we look back and we say, no, look, this is a God who has kept his promise. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, 
but also for us, Paul says, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Do you see? We don't just have the promise of God saving the world. We have the reality that he's done so in the death of Jesus. His death was a death for sin, as we saw at the end of chapter 3. His resurrection was for our justification. In other words, it was in in order to bring it about, to bring about that being made right before God. And the point with Jesus' resurrection is that it gives us grounds for our faith in Jesus' death by which we then can be justified. Jesus' resurrection shows us that his death really did achieve what God says it achieved. It's like the old story about a village which keeps being attacked by a bear who seizes the village children in the night and causes huge pain and suffering. And one brave man volunteers to go and find the bear and kill him. And a group go with him to see what happens. And they track the bear down to the cave where he sleeps. And the man disappears into the cave to deal with the bear. And everyone else stays outside. And a few minutes later, from deep inside the cave, they hear the sound of a huge struggle. And there's growling and there's shouting. And then there is silence. What has happened in the cave? Well, no one knows until a little while later the man appears at the entrance of the cave, bruised but alive. He has beaten the bear and the reason they know that is that he comes out of the cave. And it's a little like that with the resurrection of Jesus. Again, if our, if our faith is wavering, if, <clears throat> if we're struggling to believe, that is where we need to focus because we know Jesus died on the cross, but then he didn't stay dead. He was raised to life to show that he has defeated death, to show that the battle that took place at the cross was a victory for Jesus. And then we can know because of that our sins really were paid for. Death was truly defeated. And as we trust him, we stand before God today justified, accepted, You see, it's the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees all of that. He was raised to life for our justification in order that we can be confident, that we can be sure, we can put our faith in this Jesus. On Good Friday, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Professor Alice Roberts, who is a humanist professor of public engagement with science at the University of Birmingham, she caused a, a massive Twitter storm with a tweet that said simply, just a little reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. Now, apart from the crass timing and the the possible misunderstanding of what Christians are actually remembering on Good Friday versus Easter Sunday, she, she is putting her finger on the exact issue that is at the heart of Christian faith. She said, D- dead people don't come back to life. And we know that, don't we? we, we that's absolutely right. This is something that not, doesn't normally happen. But one did. And if you're, if you're not sure, well, well, go and look at the evidence. 
Go and think, are there, are there any alternative explanations for this that make more sense? There's that book, The Case for Christ, that kind of lays out all the different possibilities really well and shows how Jesus rising from the dead is the only explanation that makes sense of all that went on and that we can learn about from the evidence of history. But also see that when you understand the faith of Abraham, this is no surprise. His faith was in a God who can do the impossible, who can bring life to the dead. And as a friend of mine puts it, whether it's Sarah's barren womb or Mary's virgin tomb, virgin womb rather, or Christ's virgin tomb, these are all circumstances which look utterly hopeless, humanly speaking. But it's only when we truly despair of earthly hope that real hope in God can arise. As soon as we try to take pride in our own efforts before God, it doesn't lead to more hope, it destroys hope. It destroys any assurance or confidence that we might have. But simply receiving what God offers by faith as a gift for free, not earned, not deserved, that gives us the greatest possible assurance. David mentioned in the prayers a lady known to some of us called Gabriella Karpuska sadly died this week of cancer. She used to come to St John's in the morning a little with her son. I saw her last week before she died. She was very weak. And we talked about the hope that Christians have in the face of death. And she looked at me and she said simply and quietly, I'm in his hands. I'm in his hands. See, that is faith that doesn't waver in the face of what many would see as a hopeless situation. And one day each of us will face the same prognosis or it may come upon us unexpectedly. But only faith that looks away from ourselves and puts ourselves in his hands is going to take us through death. And we can have that faith today. Because it's not about drumming something up in ourselves, it's about saying, I'm in his hands. That's the kind of faith that will mean today, as we serve God, that we won't waver. It will give us the courage to speak about our Christian faith with those around us. It will give us the courage to make sacrificial decisions about our time and our money and where we live and what we're aiming for in life. We won't do any of those things if we're hedging our bets and putting a little wager on human effort and human accomplishment rather than on God. But he was raised to life for our justification, to give us full confidence that we are already accepted and loved by God when we simply receive that by trusting him. And once we have accepted that, maybe that's something that you need to do for yourself. But once we have accepted that, the possibilities of a life spent wholeheartedly serving God are endless and full of joy and hope, even in pain, even in suffering, even when the circumstances look hopeless, even in pandemics, because we've got what really matters, 
Whoever we are, whatever we've done, we are part of the family of faith. We have Abraham as our father. We have Jesus as our brother. And we live for him. Let's pray now. Father, we know we are people whose faith so often wavers. And we look at the circumstances of our lives and the world around us. And we are distracted. We're confused. We're led astray. We're discouraged. So draw us back to look simply at Jesus who died and rose, the one in whom you have kept your promises so we know we can trust you. Keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to encourage each other with this. Help us even today for the first time to put our faith in this Jesus to say my life is in his hands, not mine. may you then continue to draw us to unite around that Jesus as your family and to reach out with this message about Jesus to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.